hey, I want to preach to you today how to love yourself, how to love yourself. It's going to be a very practical message, but I pray that you will also find this very beneficial message. In fact, not only is it practical, I was joking with somebody in between services. I'm like, I don't know how many times I use the word soul care and self-love. I sound like a hippie, but the reality is this stuff is all over scripture. It's all over the Bible. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, how to love yourself. So I'm super, super excited. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to dive right in. Jesus, thank you so much that we get to come to church, that we get to experience your love, that we get to experience your presence, that we get to learn from you. Lord, as we open up your scriptures, would you open up our minds, God? Would you open up our hearts? Would you open up our ears to hear your voice, Jesus? Would you open up our lives, and would you change us today? Would you bring us closer and closer to your heart? Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. In your powerful name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Awesome. Well, hey, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 35. This is a story that occurs in the Gospels, a story about Jesus. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 35. This is what the scriptures say. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test them. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody say, as yourself. Oh, great job, everybody. As yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, there's this nuance in this scripture that we often skip over, that we're actually supposed to love God and love people as we love ourselves. You see, this carries with it this implication that the level in which we love ourselves dictates the level in which we'll love others. I'm going to say that again. The level in which we love ourselves dictates the level in which we'll love others. In other words, you can never give to others more than you actually have in yourself. And so that's why the idea of soul care, the idea of self-love, it's not a worldly invention. It's not vanity. It's actually not hippie talk. It's a command that we have from God. And according to Jesus, it's also a prerequisite for all other human love. And yet if we're talking real this morning, we'll notice that there's a problem. Many of us don't know how to actually love ourselves, like in a real way, an authentic way, in a genuine way, in a beneficial way. We may have heard endless sermons on how to love God. We may have heard endless sermons on how to love other people. But I know I'm even looking through back on my life, how many sermons have I actually heard on how to actually love myself? You see, here's the reality that we will never love others the way that we were created to until we first learn how to love ourselves. And we will never actually walk with God the way that we were intended to, with real genuine closeness, until we actually learn how to love ourselves. And so that's why Jesus actually talks about it so much, that we're actually supposed to love ourselves. Anybody remember this poet named Shel Silverstein? Anybody ever read any of his stuff? It's kind of funny. He's like written multiple books. I grew up actually reading him. My mom would actually read me a poem from Shel Silverstein every night before I went to sleep. Super random. But his most famous book is this book called The Giving Tree, right? The Giving Tree. It's about this young boy and this tree. And as a child, the boy would pick the leaves off the tree and he would uh, make them into crowns. And Shel Silverstein says he would play this game called King of the Forest and he would climb up the trunk and he would swing off the branches and he would eat its apples and whenever the boy got tired, he would just nap in the shade. And then as a teenager, the boy went to the tree and asked basically for money, so to speak, so he could date and go to college and live a good life. And so the tree said, I don't got money, but here are apples. You could sell these apples and actually earn money. And so that's what the boy did. And then as an adult, the boy wanted to build a house so that he could get married and so that he could have a family and he could raise kids. And so the tree gave him his branches and he cut off all the branches and he built his house. And then as an older man, after working his entire life and being weary and 
striving just constantly. He said, oh man, all I want is a boat so I could sail far, far away and think about nothing and just sit on a beach and just rest. And so the tree offered its own trunk and said, you can cut it down and build a boat. And so that's what the boy did. And Shel Silverstein says this in the story. He says, and the tree was happy, dot, 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 but not really, but not really. And then as an elderly man, the boy came back and came back to the tree and the tree mournfully said, I have nothing more to like offer you except for this just stump that you can sit on and rest upon. And so the boy sat down. He said, that's all I really need anymore anyway. <laughs> Not the happiest story ever, but if I'm being honest, friends, that's how so many of us actually live our lives. Like we pour out, we pour out, we pour out, we pour out. And then years later, we realize that we have nothing left. But we look at our own lives, right? We look at our marriages, we realize it's a stump because all we've been doing is pouring out into like anything and everything. We look at our relationships with our kids and we realize that all the branches have been cut off. We look at our own joy and fulfillment and peace and we realize that it's been sold for cheap. And we look at our own relationships with God and it's as if they're non-existent. And we keep using this phrase, oh, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy, and yet not really, just like it was said of the tree. And it's because we've never actually learned how to take care of ourselves. We've never actually learned how to care for our souls, how to love ourselves. You see, there's a story in the Gospels in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 24. It's a story about Jesus, and I think it'll help us on the subject. It says this, that a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and grew no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard reports about Jesus and came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garment, I will be made well. Man, talk about faith. And verse 29, it says this, that immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed from her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, if you read the rest of the story, the story has this beautiful ending where the woman is healed not only physically, but also emotionally and even spiritually. And I think it's worth noting, too, that Jesus didn't call this woman out publicly to shame her, but rather to save her holistically, like body and soul. And yet, it's, notice the phrase, because it's just so astounding to me. It says that Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out of him. Like, Jesus was so in touch with his body that he realized when he was actually exerting energy. Like Jesus was so in touch with his soul that he realized when vitality and strength and vigor actually left him. And then he would respond accordingly. In fact, if you look throughout the Gospels, it's incredible that we see Jesus embody this idea of soul care and self-love all throughout the scriptures. All throughout the scriptures. I'm going to give three quick examples. Upon hearing news that his cousin John the Baptist had died, scripture tells us this in Matthew chapter 14, 13. It says that Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. You see, Jesus actually gave himself permission and space to grieve and to heal and to be with his father. And then scripture tells us in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that Jesus' fame grew so much and his schedule filled up so much. And yet Jesus was even more intentional to just escape and to be by himself and to hang out with the father. And Jesus understood that the busier that life became, the more connected to the father he must become. And then there's this other kind of example in Mark chapter 7, verse 24, where Jesus literally takes a vacation with his disciples. It says that Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which was outside of Israel to the north. And he entered a house, and I think it's so funny because the scripture tells us this, and he did not want anyone to know he was there. Now we know from good theology that Jesus was fully God and fully human. It's one of the divine mysteries that'll make your brain hurt every time you think about it. But the reality is that Jesus in his human side, man, he actually needed to get away. 
He actually needed to rest. He actually needed to refresh. He actually needed to be with the Father. He actually needed to go on vacation. And why? He's giving us this example. You see, Jesus was so in touch with his body. He was so in touch with his soul. He took care of himself. He loved himself. And he did it to give us an example that we could actually follow. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to this place called Canvas and Cabernet here in Walnut Creek. Has anyone ever been there? It's like this, it's, it's, it's super fun. It's a cool experience. You, you bring this bottle of wine, you sit down, there's an art instructor, and she like basically helps you paint and create this little masterpiece. And I wanted to like be the next Picasso as a kid, so I was like living my childhood dream. I'm like, oh, this is a masterpiece. It really wasn't that great, but it was fun, you know? And so I, I'm, I'm running late on this particular night to pick up my girlfriend. And I, so we, 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 I pick her up, we swing by the grocery store, we, we, we swoop up this bottle of wine without looking at it too quickly. It's a nice bottle of wine. And, and, and we get to Canvas and Cabernet. And we walk out and, you know, the art instructor greets us and shows us, like, basically our place. And as we're walking in, we realize that this bottle of wine has this enormous chip and crack at the very bottom of it. And it's pretty big, but in my mind, I'm like, ah, it's fine. You know, it's good to drink. You know, whatever. It's, it's a nice bottle. Like, we're, it's going it's to be good. And so we sit down. And again, everybody is already there. Everybody's already in their place because we're running a little bit late. And, 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 and she gives us this bottle of uh, this bottle opener, and I stick it in the bottle of wine, and as I pull up, where the crack is, like the bottle literally just explodes, and wine just goes everywhere. I mean, it's, it goes on the canvas, it goes all over the paintbrushes, it goes all over my beautiful white shoes, it goes all over Jacqueline, all over me, all over the random person on my left. I mean, wine is literally everywhere. Like, I remember, actually, it was like it was a slow motion. I can still see it, like the bottle coming apart and water, it was like, it was a, wine was like a waterfall. I mean, it was just nuts, okay? And so, that, that, by the way, that was all within the first two minutes of us even being there. And so everyone knew our name, like, watch out for Caleb, that guy's crazy, he'll make your bottle of wine explode. Everyone was, like, asking me to open their bottles of wine. I have a reputation, I guess, now, okay? It's terrible. But the whole reason why I say that, the whole reason why I share this story, is because so many of us, we have these enormous cracks in our souls, and we keep ignoring them. Like, we have these enormous chips in our souls, and we keep ignoring them. We keep ignoring the warning signs, the terrible fatigue, the crippling anxiety, the frequent outbursts on loved ones or coworkers or friends. We try to convince ourselves that we can actually manage the cracks in our souls, that we can actually manage the chips in our souls, that they're not that big of a deal, but we have to realize that sooner or later we are going to explode all over the people around us. In the scriptures, there's this story about Samson and his girlfriend, uh, Delilah. And Delilah was a Philistine, which was actually the enemies of Israel back in that day. And, 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 and she was basically almost as like this undercover agent trying to figure out the secret to Samson's strength. Samson had the reputation of being the strongest man to ever lived. And as mystical as it sounds, his strength was tied to his lawn and uncut hair. And so day after day, Delilah's trying to figure out the secret. And it's so interesting because Samson keeps evading every single temptation until this moment in the scriptures where it says in Judges chapter 16, verse 16, when Delilah pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death, is what the scriptures say. His soul was vexed to death, and he told her all his heart. One pastor put it this way. He said that Samson's failure was soul depletion. Soul depletion. And I'd never seen it that way before. But Samson wasn't in touch with his body or his soul. And Samson didn't pay attention to the chips and the cracks that were beginning to develop in his own life. And it led to this terrible explosion of character and of his life. And I'm convinced that most of our failures and most of our stupid decisions are actually just the result of soul depletion. Like we're just that exhausted and we're not thinking clearly or thinking straight. And that's why Jesus says, you've got to take care of yourself. 
You have to learn how to love yourself. You see, self-love is not this new age jargon. It really isn't hippie talk. And I'll say this too, it's not for weaklings or for cowards, because I think so many people think, I just gotta be strong. I don't need to take care of myself. I'm just gonna muscle it out. No, no, no. Self-love is a major component in the life of Jesus, and it's a theme all throughout the Gospels. It's a command that we actually have from God. And it's utterly imperative if we're actually going to live out the mandate to love others and to love God, to walk with him. Jesus, in fact, asked this rhetorical question in the scriptures, Mark chapter 8, verse 37. He says, is anything worth more than your soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? It's rhetorical. He's saying, man, everything in our lives, it flows from here. It starts with here. And so I want to spend the next several moments with you guys uh, kind of going on this journey of learning how that we can actually take care of our souls, how we can actually learn how to love ourselves. Because I think scripture tells us four things. Scripture kind of gives us a heads up on four things that we can do in order to love ourselves. The first thing is we got to know yourself. you got to be yourself. you got to care for yourself. And finally, you got to plant yourself. So let's start with this first thing. you got to know yourself. If you're going to love yourself, it all starts with this. you got to know yourself. Arguably one of the most influential theologians in all of church history is a guy named St. Augustine. St. Augustine is how some people pronounce it. But he, he once said this, God is closer to you than you are to yourself. God is closer to you than you are to yourself. In other words, he knows you better than you know yourself. Like he knows your fears even better than you realize your fears. He knows your insecurities. He knows your, your joys. He knows your passions. He knows your desires. He knows your dreams. He knows what you're feeling. And not only does he know what you're feeling, he actually knows why you're feeling it. And not only does God know why you're feeling it, he actually feels it with you in a personal and an authentic way. In the scriptures, King David, he understood this. And I think that's why he prayed in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Like, know my thoughts. And if there's any grievous way in me, point it out and lead me in the way everlasting. It's so important for us to realize that, that David's not claiming to know himself perfectly in the scripture. I think it's actually the opposite. Like, David recognizes that he's really good at this thing called self-deception, as I think most of us are. In fact, one of my pastors and mentors, he said this once. He said, nobody lies to you more than you. Nobody lies to you more than you. And nobody lies to you, I think, better than you, in fact. And so David's not boasting in his knowledge of self. He's not boasting in his ability to be his own guide. What's he doing? He's actually asking God to lead him and navigate him in this journey of self-discovery, in this journey of learning how to know himself. He's essentially saying, God, you're my creator. Like, you're my father. Like, you know me more intrinsically and intimately than I could ever know myself. And so you got to help me on this journey to learn how to know myself. And the beautiful thing is that God actually does. Like, he actually does help us in this. He actually does help us in this journey of self-discovery. And I think he does so really by, by bringing three things into our lives. Uh, community, scripture, reflection. Community, scripture, reflection. So we're going to blitz through these real quick. So check with me. The first thing is community. The first thing is community. We, we went down a couple of months ago to Los Angeles and met with the, the team at Zoe Church. It's Pastor uh, Chad Veaches. He's an elder here at our church. And so we met with his team and picked his brain on a whole bunch of different stuff. It was such a fun trip. And my last sermon, I told a couple of stories about it. But uh, we, we went down uh, for dinner to this place called Dino's Pizza, which if you've been coming to our church for long enough, you realize that that's Pastor Tyler's like favorite place on the planet. And I'll say it does live up to the hype. Like it's really good. It's a good pizza place. We had it every night we were down there. So by the end of the trip, we're like, okay, Pastor Tyler. 
Tyler, we get it. You really like Dino's. Can we change it up? You know? but, it, but it was so good. It was so fun. And so the first night we're down there, we're just laughing, having all this conversation. I don't even know how it came up, but somehow it was relevant. And I made some comment. I was like, yeah, no, I, I've really learned how to have a really good poker face in ministry. And everyone gets really quiet. Like we were laughing. Our entire staff, by the way, is super loud in a, in a good way, I think. Um, but everyone got quiet in that moment. And all of a sudden, I, I'm kind of putting the pieces together. I'm like, wait, 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 hold up. Do I not have a good poker face? And everyone starts laughing. And Pastor Tyler looks at me. He's like, Caleb, you have the worst poker face on the planet. Like, I know exactly what you're thinking at, at any moment. In fact, he, he tells me I'm, I'm hype or hate. So either I'm going to hype something like crazy, like this is the best thing ever, or I hate it. Okay, so I guess, I guess that's it. I call it me being authentic, but, you know, I guess you could say I don't have a poker face. Okay, But here's the whole point in saying this. Community exposes deficiency. Community exposes deficiency. In other words, it reveals our blind spots. Like, like community exposes the parts of our character that are lacking. Community forces us to actually address with our weaknesses and our inconsistencies and our selfish propensities. C community illuminates the areas in our life in which we still need to grow and progress. Community provides us with the support that we need to actually become better versions of ourselves. It's, it's, it's a great paradox that we truly cannot know ourselves by ourselves. We can't know ourselves by ourselves. We need other people for that. We need community for that. We need a crew, a tribe, somebody that has our back for that. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. I'll be real. You will never discover your blind spots outside of community. And yet, here's the cool thing. Community isn't just about exposing our deficiencies, because that sounds kind of negative. Community has a ton of positives. Community is about affirming our strengths. Community is actually about like championing our dreams, like actually about pulling out the gold in us. One of the, one of the first people that ever told me that, that God was going to use me in, in incredible ways, and I was going to change the world, is the verbiage he used, was a guy named Pastor Chad Veach. And I'll never forget it. Like, what's so crazy about it is I think I was in sixth grade, and I could tell you everything about that moment. Like, I could tell you where we were, where I was standing, what he was wearing, how he was saying it. I, I, I tell you everything about that moment. Why? Because it was so special to me. Because here was this guy who was actually pulling out the gold in me, actually speaking into one of the dreams that I have in my life. And that is precisely what community is intended to do. Community points out our blind spots, and then it pulls out the gold in us. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, man, you got to be in community. Like, you got to be plugged in. And if you're not involved in a mission group, I want to invite you to be a part of a mission group. And if you haven't been through mission track, I want to invite you to be a part of mission track. Because you are not created to do life by yourself. We say it all the time. Jesus died for a relationship. we got to invest in it. I mean it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. In other words, it's so easy, isn't it, to kind of drift away from community. To all of a sudden be like, oh, I'm just busy, you know. Kids are in, in sports and school is kind of ending. So it's just, you know, it's vacation time. And all of a sudden, pretty soon, our community is so far from us. And so the scripture says, don't do that. Encourage one another and do it all the more. Do it all the more. You see, if you're going to learn how to know yourself, you have to be in community. And here's the second thing. You have to be in the scriptures. Like You have to be in the scriptures. The apostle James, who is also the physical brother of Jesus, he, he, he wrote the following. James chapter 1, verse 22, he said, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, and he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. And the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the scriptures, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
The analogy here that James is using is so fascinating to me. He's literally comparing Scripture to a mirror. Like, like I'll look in the mirror, and some days I'm like, okay, I like what I see. This is me just being real, right? Other days I'm like, I do not like what I see at all. Like, oh, God, help me, you know? But that's the parallel that James is actually using, that every time we open up the Bible, we have an opportunity to actually know God better, but not only to know God better, but to actually know ourselves better. You see, when I read Scripture, certain things stir my passion, and other things break my heart. Certain things make me laugh, and other things actually convict my soul. And all of these things actually move me closer to God's heart, and all of these things are actually indicators of my own unique personhood and invite me to become more and more of myself. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He said, man, the, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up my personality to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. To put it simply, the deeper we know God, the deeper we'll know ourselves. The more we hang out with God, the more we'll know ourselves. And I'll be real with you. Learning scripture helps us know how, uh, helps us know, know ourselves. But obeying scripture, as James was talking about, so that's where he's like, don't just hear the word, actually do it. Obeying scripture is what helps us actually become ourselves. But we'll touch on that in a sec. So we need community, we need scripture, and here's the third thing. We need reflection. We need just moments of reflection. I've always loved personality assessments. Anyone with me? Anyone just love personality assessments? Like you'll take all of them. I've taken them all. Like I've taken Myers-Briggs. I've taken DISC. I've taken Strength Finders. Uh, last year, I became relatively engulfed in this thing called the Enneagram. Anyone ever heard of the Enneagram? Ah, oh, I love the Enneagram. The Enneagram is this assessment that places you in one of nine different patterns of thinking and feeling and acting. And for those of you who have actually taken it, I'll just spare you the guessing and throw it out there. I'm a type one. If you have no idea what that means. Oh, thank you. Type one out there. Let's go. We got to stick together. Come on. Um, but the, uh, it, it's, it's a great assessment. And, and I, I, I took it. And then afterwards, I read this book. I read the book on an Enneagram, and what I found out in it, it was so enlightening to me, is that type ones constantly battle this inner voice that tells them that they're not enough. Like, this is me just being super transparent, just real, and I hope it encourages you. But there's this constant voice that's like, you're, you're not doing enough. You, you're not accomplishing enough. You, as a person, are not actually enough. Timothy Keller, the great apologist of our generation, he puts it this way. He calls it the inner murmur of self-reproach. It's this constant nagging at our souls. And if I could just be really transparent, the month of January was such a successful month on paper. Like we launched mission groups. We had over 40 mission groups, which is awesome. We had a blueprint for mission college. I was walking out of one of the greatest fires and trials of my entire life and feeling so fired up and so close to Jesus. I mean, everything on paper was like, okay, we're killing it. I'm super excited. And yet I was going to bed at night feeling like a failure almost every single night. Why? Because I was looking at my life. I was like, I didn't read enough books today. I didn't write enough. I didn't work on my book enough. I, I, I didn't like work out enough. I, I didn't meet with enough people. I didn't mentor enough people. I didn't do this enough. I had this long list of things that were just nagging at my soul. And then I read this book on the Enneagram, as simple as it sounds. And all of a sudden it just clicked. And for the first time in my life, I was able to actually invite Jesus into this like process, into this like struggle of mine, into this like internal battle that I've been raging like my entire life. The whole reason why I say this, not to make this sermon about me, this is the point, is that we cannot invite Jesus into something that we are unaware of. We can't invite Jesus into something that we are unaware of. Now, Jesus is good enough to actually help reveal those things to us, thank God. But we have to do the hard work of reflection. 
We have to do the hard work of reflection. For some of us, it looks like journaling. Journaling is one of the best disciplines I've ever created in my life. It's helped me so much. For some of us, it looks like just prayer. It looks like personality assessments, maybe. For some of us, it's solitude. It's just taking quiet moments of just being with Jesus. For some of us, it's counseling. It's therapy. There's such a value in counseling. In fact, we have one of the greatest counselors on the planet that goes to our church, Jenny Allen. What's up? I see you. Let's go. Let's go. Now, i got to be real. This isn't always a comfortable process because why? It actually requires us to lean into your emotions rather than lean away from them. It requires you to feel all the feels, as the saying goes, right? It requires you to actually think and to process and to pray and to do the hard work of actually digging into your life. And yet, friends, it is the only path to freedom and to self-discovery. Community, scripture, and reflection. Man, if we're going to love ourselves, we have to begin to learn how to know ourselves. We have to know ourselves. And here's my second point for us. You have to be yourself. You got to know yourself, and then you just got to be yourself. I'm going to say one more thing on personality assessments, and then I'll drop it, and we'll move on. No more talk about personality assessments, okay? But Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is an incredibly profound thought. We could spend an entire morning just unpacking that verse alone, but I'll just say this on the subject and kind of tie it together. Every single personality type is a piece of the image of God. It's a sliver of his personality. Like God is every personality type at its best. Now, why do I say that? It's because I, I say that because I've met people that they'll take a personality assessment and they think that they have a, a certain result and they're lesser than because of that result. And here's, here's the reality. Is there are no bad personality types and there are no mistakes when it comes to the way that God actually created you. You are not a mistake. Some of you just need to hear that. Like you were created on purpose. You were created with intentionality. You were created with love and with delight, more love and delight than you could ever comprehend. A couple of weeks ago, we were celebrating uh, Casey Burnett's birthday. Casey Burnett's our church coordinator. Casey, could we just give a quick shout out to Casey? She's, she's the best. Casey like does so much for our church and she just kills it. But so we were celebrating with her and we're driving on the way back. Our entire staff is there and we're all talking about like different inspirations that we have in life. And this guy named Rich Wilkerson Jr. came up. He's a pastor in Miami church or in Miami, Florida. It's a Vu church and he's just killing it over there. And it was just funny. I got like oddly excited about this particular uh, like conversation where I was like, dude, Rich Wilkerson Jr. is my swag coach. Like anything and everything that guy wears, I want to wear. I mean, I was getting kind of weirdly fired up about it. And so Pastor Tyler, he's like, okay, okay. He, he, he's in the front seat. He, he turns around and he's like, Caleb, I, I got a suggestion. I got just an idea. How about this year? You be your own swag coach. And he like says it that way, you know? And I'm thinking to myself like, whew, that's a lot of pressure being my own swag coach. But here, here, here's the reality is I knew what he was actually getting at. It didn't have a lot to do with fashion, and it didn't really have anything to do with style. What he was actually saying is, he goes, God doesn't need two Rich Wilkerson Juniors. God doesn't need two C.S. Lewis's or Dietrich Bonhoeffer's. Those are my heroes. God doesn't need to fill in the blank, whoever your heroes are, whoever your inspirations are. You know what God needs? God needs you, and God needs me to become everything he's created us to actually be. Like, that's what God needs, and that's what God's after. You see in the Psalms, King David, he famously wrote this in, in Psalms 139, beginning in verse 13. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now, there are two phrases in this scripture that just get me. They just stand out to me every time I read them. And the first is this, fearfully. The word fearfully. You ever notice what a weird compliment that is? Like, or maybe it's just me. Like, I've never said, oh, you look so fearful tonight. You know, like, thanks, like, weird. Please don't ever say that again. And, and yet, that's what David's actually saying. Like, I, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
We look at the Hebrew, and what that Hebrew word actually means, fearfully, is to stand in awe of. To stand in awe of. You ever see an artist just admire his or her work? Like, just look at it? There's such admiration in their eyes. There's such love in their eyes. There's such pride in their eyes. There's such delight in their eyes when they admire the masterpiece that they created. And church, you just got to hear, that's how God looks at you. Like, that's how God looks at you. And, and, and I just, I love it. David understands that. The second thing is this. He, he understands it so much that he actually says, my soul knows it very well. Like, I think that's kind of funny, too. Like, David's literally saying, hey, I know that I'm a masterpiece. Like, I know that I actually have heaven's delight. Like, I know that God created me so, so well. Like, almost to an arrogant degree, but it's so funny, and it's in the Bible intentionally. David's saying, I know it so well, and here's the question I have for you. Do you know it so well? Like, do you know it very well? Because I look at my life, and if I'm just being real with you, man, so often we walk in insecurity as if we're not God's sons and daughters. And we walk in shame as if we haven't been cleansed as white as snow. And we walk in fear as if God's presence isn't the only qualification that we actually need for success in this world. One of the prayers I think a lot of us need to adopt is, Lord, may I know the truth about who I am very well, just like David did. So I love David for that. I appreciate David for that. And another figure in the scriptures is a guy named John, and he's kind of similar to David. In fact, John went so far as he, he wrote the Gospel of John was his and wrote a couple other books. And, but, but, but in the biography of Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the third person throughout the entire book. And this is how he says it. He goes, I'm the one Jesus loves. Like, it's literally like the one Jesus loves was hanging out next to Jesus. The one Jesus loves, the one he constantly refers to himself as the one Jesus loves. And I'm sure that totally ticked off the disciples so much. But I I just picture John just like soaking it up, like just loving it. Like just knowing like, no, no, this is the confidence that I have in how much Jesus loves me. I'm the one he loves. And I just think it's so interesting. It's in the Bible intentionally. It's in the Bible on purpose. It's in the Bible to actually give us an example of how we should actually think about ourselves. You are the one Jesus loves, and your soul should know it very, very well. Can I hear an amen, church? Come on, so if you're going to love yourself, you need to know yourself, you need to be yourself. Here's the third thing, you need to care for yourself. You need to care for yourself. There's another guy in the scriptures named Elijah, and he was an extraordinary figure. In fact, in 1 Kings 17, this is where he kind of steps on the scene. He's literally multiplying food and feeding a starving family. And then the very next paragraph, he's raising this young dude from the dead. And then in 1 Kings 18, he's literally like confronting the king of Israel in front of the entire nation, making fire fall down from heaven. And then in 1 Kings 19, guess what? He's completely soul depleted. Like, we get to 1 Kings 19, and Elijah, he's like, his soul depletion through the roof. I mean, he's just exhausted. He's weary. Emotionally, he has nothing left. He's, he's struggling with depression. And this is where we pick up the story. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 3, it says this, that Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take my life from me. I'm no better than my father's. And then he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I think that God is just so kind in this story. The first thing is just so interesting is he actually acknowledges Elijah and says, Hey, the journey is too much for you. Like, the journey is too great for you. You have too much on your plate. And if I could just speak freely, that's the story of a lot of our lives right now. Like, there's just too much on our plate. 
And if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to examine what's actually on our plate. And I think there are certain things that we may have to actually surrender to the Lord. And then what's next is so interesting too, because God gets super practical. Like you would think that God would say to Elijah, like, hey, you need to spend more time with me. You need to pray more. You need to read the Bible more. You need to do this more. You need to do that more. And what is God's advice to Elijah? Eat, take a nap, and repeat. Like eat, take a nap, and repeat. Can I hear an amen? Like, I think we could call it a day, church. Like that's all we need, right? Eat, take a nap, and repeat. Like that's literally God's answer to Elijah's problem. He's prescribing a heavy dose of soul care and self-love. And the most crazy thing is that it actually works. It actually works. Like Elijah, the scripture tells us that he went on the strength of that food. It was that food. It was that eat, take a nap, repeat that actually replenished his soul. The answer was more practical. It was more physical than it was even spiritual. Elijah was so soul depleted and God intervened to help him like learn how to actually take care of himself. And what's so extraordinary to me is that James chapter 5 verse 17 says that Elijah was a man just like us. He had a nature just like ours. And man, if Elijah struggled with that, then we have to be aware of it too. We have to learn how to take care of ourselves. And so there are three really quick things. I'm going to just blitz through these, but just to get really, really practical that we need to do on a regular basis in order to actually take care of ourselves. And I'll say this, Craig Rochelle, he pastors one of the biggest churches in America. He says that successful people do consistently what others do occasionally. These three things aren't just like, oh yeah, I do them once a year. These three things should actually be the rhythm of our lives. Like we should actually integrate them in our daily routine and our weekly routines. The first thing that we have to do if we're going to take care of ourselves is we have to rest. We have to rest. We have to rest. One of my mentors, he's a theologian and a professor up in Oregon, he came out with a book called The Subversive Sabbath, and the entire book is on rest. And one of his big lines in the book, and I'd highly recommend it, by the way, if it's a topic that intrigues you, but one of the, one of the big lines in the book is this, to, to not rest is to live a genetically modified existence. To not rest is to live like a GMO existence. And maybe you've been there. I've been there. Man, when I was, I was working full-time, I was, just started seminary, this un, ridiculous class load. That's actually when I got addicted to coffee, by the way. I started drinking like 10 cups of coffee a day, and I'd walk into like meetings and be like, I'm here, I'm alive, I'm good. And I literally felt like I was running on this like GMO kind of existence. To not rest is to live a genetically modified existence. We are not created to live like that. We're not created to run on coffee. I'm preaching to myself right now. Help me, okay? We're not created to live on coffee. We're actually created to live from a place of rest from a place of actually soul care and self-love. I think it's so interesting that when you read the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, right? We, 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 it's the creative acts. And on the seventh day is the day that God rests, right? Well, what day was humankind created? The sixth day. You see, our, our very first day of existence was a day of, of rest, a day of just soul care. I think we have it so backwards. Because so many of us were working so incessantly and so insatiably just to get to the weekend. And by the time we get to the weekend, we're so worn out that we can't even rest. We can't even enjoy our families or our marriages. We can't do anything because we're just so exhausted and so soul depleted. And we have it so backwards that we don't just, we, we don't work for rest. We work from rest. Like we literally rest so then, then we can go work and then we can go change the world. And then we can go make a difference in our respective contexts. I love Psalm 127, verse 2. It says this. It says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sleep. Oh, come on. Can I hear an amen on that? Okay. Sometimes the holiest thing that we can do is to just eat, take a nap, 
and repeat, okay? Rest. We have to rest. Here's the second thing. Exercise. Exercise. I know I'm, I told you, I'm going to get really, really practical, but God got practical with Elijah, so it's all good, okay? But we need to exercise. I'll just, I'm going to just say it real, real simply. Discipleship is holistic. In other words, when we follow Jesus, everything is connected. Everything is intertwined, like our body, our soul, and our mind. It's all connected, and neglecting one of these will undoubtedly affect the other two. Now, I'm a runner. I'm one of the weird people that actually really, really, like, enjoys running. In fact, I feel like almost every single week somebody comes up to me and is like, I saw you running the other day, and you, like, totally look like you were in the zone. So just never never be offended if you see me running. My AirPods are always at the max volume, and uh, I'm just, I'm lost in it. But here's, here's the reality is that I've learned that, man, I need those moments. Like, I need them. Like, emotionally, I, I, I need to, like, work out. Like, spiritually even, I need to work out. It's so funny because like working out actually gives me a place to even work through my emotions, gives me a space to even just kind of pray, to even just kind of think and process the day. What's funny and ironic too is a lot of my messages actually come from those moments of even working out. I think it's just because it gives my brain a space to just process life. It's so interesting. But all of it is connected. Discipleship is so holistic, and that's why Jesus even talks about it. And that's why even the Apostle Paul talks about it. In, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul validates the necessity, the, the value in actually working out. He literally uses this word gymnasia. It's a Greek word that literally we get the, the English word gym from, and he says it has value. Like spiritual value is at the very top, but don't get it wrong. Physical like training actually has value as well. So we need to rest. We need to exercise. Here, here, here's the last thing, and I love this one. We need to just enjoy life. We, we need to enjoy life. Like, we need to play. We need to just, like, incorporate just enjoyment into our daily routines. The, the great King Solomon, who has this reputation of being the wisest man to ever live, he wrote this memoir, and it's called the Book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a pretty depressing book. He was in kind of a depressed place when he, when he wrote it. But he's basically looking back on his life and talking about everything that he's learned. And this is one of the things he says in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15. He says this, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. That first phrase is so interesting to me. I commend joy. I commend it. The Hebrew word for commend literally means to get loud about. Like Solomon is literally prescribing this heavy dose of joy just to everybody, saying, man, we got to learn how to enjoy life. Uh, Pastor Tyler has this little phrase even around our staff where he says, we have to learn how to not take life so seriously and yet take God seriously. And I think that we can actually do that. I think that we can actually do that. And when we learn how to do that, we'll learn that we actually are enjoying life so much more because the reality is we were created for joy. In fact, John chapter 10, 10, Jesus, he's teaching his disciples and he says this. He goes, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I've come so you have life and life to the fullest. You know, Jesus actually stepped into human history so you could have peace to the fullest. So you could have freedom to the fullest. So you could actually have hope to the fullest. So you could have joy to the fullest. In fact, I think it's so interesting because all throughout the scriptures, in John chapter 16, there's a, uh, even in 1 John chapter 2, I mean, all throughout the scriptures, there's this theme, hey, I want your joy to be complete. I want your joy to be complete. Joy and Jesus actually go together. And we got to begin to realize that. In fact, I think it's so interesting. C.S. Lewis, he actually attributed his conversion, like even his, like the, the journey that he went on of discovering that God is real, that he lives, and that he's worthy of our lives to this concept and the reality of joy. 
He, he said that he, he can't separate the two. You can't separate joy and Jesus. And it was so profound to him that he actually wrote uh, his autobiography and named it Surprised by Joy. It's crazy. Jesus and joy go together. We got to learn how to enjoy life, how to learn to not take life so seriously, but take God seriously. And so if we're going to learn how to take care of ourselves, that's kind of the rhythm that we're going to need. And of course, there are other things. I'm trying to condense so much information in one little message. But man, we got to learn how to rest. We got to exercise. And we just got to play. We got to enjoy life. And so that's, that's how we're going to take care of ourselves. Know yourself. Be yourself. Care for yourself. And finally, I'm going to invite the worship team up. Plant yourself. You got to plant yourself. Man, if you're going to love yourself, you got to stay planted. It's so interesting to me uh, being in ministry now and watching that Man, it's when our souls are depleted that we're so tempted to isolate ourselves, isn't it? Like, rather than planting ourselves, which is what we should do in those moments when life just kind of hits the fan, when everything happens, when everything falls apart, we should actually plant ourselves in community all the more. We should actually plant ourselves in the church all the more. We should actually plant ourselves in life-giving relationships all the more. We should actually plant ourselves in the scriptures and in God's presence all the more. And yet our first inclination is what? To retreat. It's to uproot. It's to isolate ourselves. And I'll be real with you. To isolate yourself is to desolate yourself. Man, you're not created to live an isolated life. I think it's so interesting that you have this creation account, Genesis chapter 1. And then Genesis chapter 3 is when sin actually enters the world. And Adam and Eve, they sin, and, and it's so interesting because there's, like, it's, it's kind of mystical, but there's this, this curse that comes about where they're actually kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And I just think it's so interesting that the curse was not being planted, the curse was wandering. The curse was not, oh, you, you have to stay planted here, you have to live here, you have to remain here. No, the curse was actually, no, you, you, you now wander. And I think the same is true in our lives. The curse isn't us actually like finding a church and plugging in and serving and actually developing relationship and joining mission groups and getting connected. That's not the curse. That's the blessing. And even in a relational context, the curse isn't commitment. That's the blessing. You see, the curse is not being planted. The curse is actually wandering. Man, we got to plant ourselves. Psalm 92, verse 12 says this, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord, and they flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit, even in old age, and they are ever full of sap, and they are green. Come on, it is when you plant yourself that you experience life-giving relationship. It is when you plant yourself that you thrive the art of soul care and self-love. It is when you plant yourself that you begin to live a truly extraordinary life. You have to plant yourself in church. You have to plant yourself in community. You have to plant yourself in the scriptures. You have to plant yourself in Jesus Christ himself. And that is when you're going to be able to live a truly extraordinary life. I'll close with this verse. It's such a beautiful promise that we have from Jesus himself. He says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me. Come to me, all, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, the invitation that we have in Jesus Christ is actually, it's rest for our souls. It's actually care for our souls. It's actually love. It's, it's, it's John 10, 10. It's life and life abundantly, life to the fullest. But let me emphasize something here. The invitation leads to Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, come to, come to me. Come to me. 
You see people all over the world, man, we're running to every single source, religion, practice, dogma, and we're finding out that all that does is actually deplete our souls even further. The answer to soul depletion is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. One of my favorite philosophers, his name is Soren Kierkegaard, he said this about Matthew 11. He said, those words come to me, presumably you must be understood in this way, remain in me, I am that rest. That's what Jesus said, I am that rest. And then Kierkegaard concludes, he says, the helper is the help. The helper is the help. You see, the reality is you will never be able to know yourself without Jesus. And you'll never be able to truly be yourself. You'll never be able to have that kind of freedom, that kind of confidence, that kind of authority to actually be yourself without Jesus. And you won't have the grace or the strength or, or the discipline to actually care for yourself or even the permission to care for yourself without Jesus. And you won't be able to actually stay planted in something that gives you life rather than depletes your life without Jesus. Jesus is the answer. The helper is the help. In him there is love and life and peace and grace to the fullest. Can I hear an amen, church? Come on, let's pray together.